Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. I'll be reading the passage for you today. It's from Daniel 3, chapter, or verses 1 to 12, if you'd like to follow along. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of the gold, the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zyre, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have sent over to the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I figured they tell you when you're, when you're speaking to people that you basically need to do something in the first five minutes to grab people's attention, otherwise they tune out. Um, so I figured you're just going to write the sermon for the first five minutes, and then if you're bored, it's your, your own fault. Um, okay, so that's what we're going to do, because I want to ask you a question, and then I want you to answer, help me answer it. Uh, and it's a simple question. What do you want? What do you want? Now, just to help you focus your answers, let's say, let's say you're a two-year-old, okay? Put, your, put yourself in the, in the mind of a two-year-old. What do you want? Candy? Cookie. Yes, absolutely. This is like your whole life is fixed on these things. What else do you want? Toys. Yes? Attention. Attention. That's right. That never ends. Um, okay. What else? Okay, thank you. I'm just going to put this, which is the symbol for change, okay? So don't get any more graphic than that. What else do you want as a two-year-old? Come on. Love, love, affection, yes. Oh, did you say mom? Yes, yes, which also basically, yes, mom. Okay, now let's say you are, and some of you have never been this, but let's say you're a 10-year-old girl, okay? What do you want? What's the answer to that question? A cell phone, yes. You want new shoes? Clothes, yes. What else? Friends, yes. You do not want homework. You have never been a 10-year-old girl, Mirko. Pardon? Thinner. 
All right, what else? Pardon? Social media, yes. Okay. Okay. All right, let's say you are a 17-year-old boy. Just say it out loud. I know you're thinking it. A car. A car. A girlfriend. Freedom. Money. Pizza. I, that's, these are all good. Video games. That's the 10%. Sex is the other 90% of what's being thought about. Let's just be honest. Okay, let's say you are a 35-year-old woman. Now, pause for a second, because all of you married to a 35-year-old woman, you're thinking, finally, I'm going to get the answer to this. This is worth coming to church for. Now, if you have never been a 35-year-old woman, do not answer this question, okay? But let's say you have, what do you want? Okay, you might want a child. You want to be, okay, to be younger. Okay, fine. Let's put that. Time. Oh my gosh, please. Sleep, silence, okay. Chocolate. Can I add that, you know, you probably want to be somewhere in your career. You want to be recognized. Okay, what if you are, let's say, a 55-year-old Man, when I asked Dave Lombardo this question, he said, well, just everything the 17-year-old boy wants. Um, <laughs> if you're a 55-year-old man, what do you want? Okay, freedom. A week off, for goodness sake, just once. Okay, retire, yes. You probably want to be financially somewhere, right? Stable. Health, you want your health, yep. Yes, mortgage-free. Okay. Now, we won't keep going. We could. And we can't read any of that. But you, you've, okay? Now, none of these things, like these things were easy for us to think about, right? Because they're things that either we're aware of that we wanted when we were at that point in life or that other people we know are. It's not hard to think about the answer to the question, what do you want in life? And none of these things that we can look at and say are inherently evil, maybe social media is, but like, uh, no, just like you think, okay, well, these aren't, these aren't things that are wrong. These are just human things. The problem is this, um, and actually we live in a culture that says, hey, you should be able to get what you want. Like you're entitled to get what you want as long as you don't hurt anybody else in the process of getting it, right? That's what we live in a world. Hey, pursue what you want. I mean, capitalism itself revolves around that principle. Pursue what you want to the greatest extent that you can pursue it as long as you don't hurt or take advantage of somebody else in the process, which actually is very hard to do. But let's just say that that's the case. The problem with all of the things that we want, there's a number of problems with it. One is we've all had the experience where we wanted something, and then when we got it, we realized later, oh, it's not actually what I want. Like if I asked you what you got for Christmas three years ago, and you really wanted it three years ago, but you can't for the life of you remember what it is now. But at the time, it was like really shiny and really pretty, and you really wanted it. But things fade that we want. There's other times where we got what we wanted, but we had to sacrifice a lot to get it. And when we got it, we're like, man, that wasn't worth what I gave up to get it. Sometimes just straight money. We go, man, I can't believe I dropped this much on that. Other times you're like, man, I can't believe I spent that much time in my life. I can't believe I spent that much money. I can't believe I, spent, I sacrificed that much time with other people to get that. And when I got it, man, it didn't deliver. 
Many of us have had the experience of getting the things that we want and then we find we can't live without them and so we just need more of them. So we find oftentimes we get addicted to the things that we want. And then there are things that maybe none of us are ready to admit to put on the board. We think things that we want that we know we shouldn't want. And the history of the world is littered with the wreckage of lives of people who got what they want. Now, there are some religions and faith systems will say, well, see, this is the problem. Desire is the problem. So if we could just meditate or just we could find a way to disconnect ourselves from anything that we want, we would be able to find this place of inner peace, which sounds really good if we could. It's just not possible because what you know, and I know it took us 30 seconds to fill this board, we are incapable of not wanting things. It's actually like desire is a part of human existence. And so what do we do? Because we live in a culture that says, hey, just get whatever you want. It's okay. And yet we know that actually our culture is filled with addiction, disappointment, despair, and destruction because we got what we wanted. And so if we're looking at this honestly and saying, wait, to want something is to be human. I can't actually disconnect myself from the desires that I want. And maybe Maybe some of you feel like you've gotten all of these things or many of them you're still looking for. You can't disconnect ourselves from desire. And yet desire seems to lead so often to disappointment and addiction and destruction. And the reason is this, I think, because there's one word that really relates to all of this stuff that if we don't understand, we won't understand desire in ourselves. It's one word that's actually universally applicable to every single one of us, every single one of us in this room, no matter what age you are, and almost every moment of the day, this word is governing your life. And yet most of us never say it out loud or never think that it's actually reality. And it's this word. the word worship. Worship. Like worship isn't a religious word. Uh, worship isn't music. Worship comes from kind of this, this old English word that we kind of crammed together to make the word worship. Worthship. In other words, what is worth, what is valuable, what we desire. To worship is to be human. Every single one of us in our lives, almost every part of the day, is looking for something that we can cling on to, to ascribe worth and value to, and to say, this thing is worth my time. This thing is worth my energy. This thing of, is, is of value to me. I am devoted to it because of what it means to me. So the words worship and desire and value are all connected into this whole matter of what it is that we want in life. The reason I want to talk about it today, I'm just going to push it over here and you can kind of think about that. Sorry, guys. Is the passage that we read for this morning is from the book of Daniel. And we're in this series in this book called Daniel, which is a bit of a historical book and it's also kind of a prophetic book. And the book is about these young Jewish people who have been pulled out of their uh, city in Jerusalem, which was destroyed by 
sort of the, the empire of Babylon at that time. And what we said was Babylon would do when they were conquer these sort of nations is they would sort of destroy the buildings, tear down the walls, leave all of the poor and the sick and the uneducated people there and say, you know what, they'll never rebuild the city by themselves. We'll take all of the educated, the royalty, the sort of the elite, and we'll bring them into Babylon and we'll brainwash them and we'll make them become Babylonians. And so in doing so, we will strengthen our own culture and our own nation. So this book of Daniel is about these young men who are brought into a world that is not their own. And we've called the series Foreigners because we said even though we don't kind of necessarily, that's probably not been any one of your experience in the room, we can all relate to being in a place that we feel somehow like we don't fit in. Like somehow this is a world, this is an environment, this is a space that it doesn't, I don't quite feel at home in this place. And this book is actually really instructive to us because it helps us figure out, hey, what do you do when you're in a place that doesn't feel like home? that feels kind of a little bit hostile at times. And the word, the, the city of Babylon was not only an, an actual ancient city, and now it's sort of located about 90 kilometers south of Baghdad, but it's actually a, a, a metaphor for this reality of the world that you and I live in that, that carries on from the beginning of time into now, this kingdom, this world that is constantly kind of trying to suck us in. And this passage today is about worship that happens in Babylon. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a story, so, so if you've been tracking with us at all, or if you're not, there's this crazy guy, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's really powerful and kind of crazy, a little bit of a megalomaniac and whatever, and so he runs this place, Babylon, this nation state, this empire. And, uh, and he uh, makes this uh, image, and we don't really know what the image is. Uh, some people, come, some commentators think it was an image of himself. Um, and actually, they found, if you go to what they think was where Dura used to exist, which is just south of Babylon, so still in Iraq, they find archaeologists discovered this massive kind of stone square platform that they think was probably what this statue was built on. And so this statue was built, and we don't really know what it was. It was an image of gold, so it was beautiful. Um, and it, it was either a, a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself, which would probably square with everything else we've read about him, or it was an image of one of the Babylonian gods, or it was some kind of an image that represented the nation of Babylon. Like, um, let's say like the Statue of Liberty or something like that. Some kind of image that isn't of any specific person, but it represents something about this nation. And so you see, um, what he, and the reason he's doing this is because there's all kinds of different nations and people in Babylon, all these pe people they've conquered, right? So he gives this message and says, look, anyone from any country or wherever you're from, we're all going to gather together. I'm going to play the music and you're all going to bow down. Now, we all think that's kind of weird but it happens at the National Anthem every time there's a baseball game. But anyways, I'm just saying. So music plays, and he's saying, look, all of you, I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your religious background is. I don't care what your ethnic background is. We are all going to worship this same God together. So when the music plays, you're going to bow down, and that's what happens. And we find out that these three guys, um, three of Daniel's friends who are uh, Jews, don't bow down. And so they're in this crowd of thousands and thousands of people. The music's playing, and now it's very obvious that they are not bowing down. They sort of stick out, which is interesting for us because one of the things we've noticed about these guys is they have risen to the top of the, of the, the cream of the crop in Babylon. They are Nebuchadnezzar's. They are in his inner circle. They are some of his best advisors. They are some of his most valuable people. They have um, become the best of the best. They've become experts in the ways of the Babylonians. They've understood all their literature. They've understood all their religion. They are better than any of the other sorcerers and everything. They've completely immersed themselves in this culture of Babylon. And all of a sudden, they decide, wait, we can't do this. 
and they make this stand that kind of is so obvious, so public that everyone else and the guys who are kind of jealous of them that they've risen through the ranks kind of rat them out. They say, hey, these guys are refusing to worship this image. And what they were saying in that moment was not just, and we know that as, as good God-fearing Jews, they would have been taught from the beginning of time, you know, the Ten Commandments, don't have any other gods before me, God said. This wasn't just about them, oh, we're not bowing down to this idol. It just says it was an image of gold. What they were saying was, Nebuchadnezzar is not, is not God, the gods of the Babylonians are not God, and the nation-state of Babylon is not God. We are not bowing down to this person, this culture, or the values that all of this represents. It's actually an interesting time because there's all these conversations about football players kneeling during the national anthem. It is this little bit of this passive resistance that they make that's quite a public display. And you might say, well, good for them. You know, they were, you know, they were kind of holding on to their values in a culture that's not their own. But what does this have to do with me and you? Because, you know, people aren't asking us regularly to bow down to gods and, you know, there's no crazy person in our lives like Nebuchadnezzar for most of us. You know, some of you have been thinking about your boss a lot during the series, but no. Um, what, what is this about? Well, it's actually very relevant to us in this whole matter of worship. See, the image of gold was not just, if it, if, it, if it was, an image of Nebuchadnezzar. It was an image of Babylon and all of the values that Babylon represented. You remember what we said a couple weeks ago, the values of Babylon were and the values of Babylon are, the values of the culture that we live in? Wealth, power, fame, beauty. This is the image of gold. If I can say it this way, this is what we want. This is what we want. These are the things we desire. These are the things that are beautiful to the eye. What we want, what we crave. Almost in many ways, everything on that list could fit in that thing. The, in, we live in a culture that says, hey, isn't this what you want? Pursue it. Pursue wealth. Pursue power. Don't be, don't be out of control. Don't be the lowest person on the totem pole. Pursue fame, like just get recognition. Be recognized for what you've done and who you are. Don't let others pass you over or miss out on the greatness of who you are. Start a YouTube channel, right? Like this is who we are. Or beauty, look your best, be your best, preserve your health and your body and however that looks. That this is the image of gold that in a sense we are presented with all the time saying, this is what you want. This is what is of utmost importance to you. And you say, okay, yeah, but there's no crazy dictator making me bow down. Yes, there is. They came to church with you today. They're wearing your sweater and wearing your shoes. Right? It's your crazy heart. It's your crazy, worshiping heart. It's my crazy heart that is looking to worship something. Every one of us have hearts that cannot but worship. We cannot stop looking for things to say, this is what is of utmost importance to me. And we live in a culture that says, here it is, wealth, fame, power, beauty. Now, don't tune out those of you that are here and say, oh, I'm a Christian. I worship Jesus. I know, so do I. <laughs> right? This is actually an issue for every single one of us. And let me unpack it for you. Why do I say that we worship these things? Well, we look to whatever will give us satisfaction or salvation. Whatever promises to satisfy us, 
or whatever promises to give us stability, to give us hope, to give us security, we say, you are the thing I need most. You are the thing that is going to satisfy me. You are the thing that is going to give me stability in life. And it is possible for us to take any one of those things, wealth, power, fame, beauty, and say, you are the thing that satisfies me. Let's take wealth, for example. See, oftentimes we might look at someone who um, has a lot of money and spends a lot of money and says, oh, look at that person. Like, money is, a, is an idol for them. But actually, you can't tell whether money is a god for someone or not. Because someone who doesn't have a lot of money and saves a lot for the future could also be worshiping the god of wealth. Why? Because for one, perhaps money promises satisfaction. Like you'll feel good about yourself if you can wear nice clothes or you can do nice things or you can, you know, have lots of experiences. You get satisfied, you get great vacations, you eat rich food or you, you like, you know, you'd like to be able to go out when you, like that's wealth. It, it makes me feel good. Like I feel satisfied with myself. It's, it's an enjoyment in my busy life. But someone who's not a spender, someone who doesn't have a lot of money, who saves every penny could equally be bowing down to the God of wealth because they're saying, you know what? You are the thing that's going to give me security in the long run of my life. You are the thing that's going to tell me I'm going to be okay if I get fired or if someone passes away or I'm 65 or 75 and can't work anymore. I have this little nest egg that I've been saving my whole life and it's not a lot, but it's enough. And that's what's going to give me security in the future. You see, it's so crazy, this wealth thing. It could be satisfaction because I like to spend. It could be security because I want to save. But either way, I am looking to it to say, you are the thing that gives me satisfaction. You are the thing that gives me security in life. Well, what about power? You know, none of us are, are, will admit to being, you know, power mongers or think, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't have a lust for power. I just don't like to feel out of control. <laughs> right? And those of us who worry a lot, it's a temptation for us to bow down to the God of power. Why do we worry? Because we feel out of control in a situation. We worry about our money because we don't feel in control of our finances. We worry about our health because we don't feel in control of our health. We worry about their job security because we don't feel in control about our employer and how they're working things. Or we get into fights with our spouse or our kids because we're mad at them. Why? Because they're blocking our goals. Why? Because we can't make them do what we want them to do. So we are out of control with them. Control is this thing. I, I remember reading a book by Tim Keller years ago called Counterfeit Gods, and he said about a guy he knew who was, when he was young and in his 20s, he slept around with a lot of women. And you might think, look at someone, oh, sex is their God. That's all, that's all they want to do. He said when he got married, you know, that behavior wasn't socially acceptable anymore, and so he got married and he didn't sleep around anymore. But his wife and kids would tell you he was always angry, had to win every argument they were ever in, and always had to win even every game they ever played. Why? Because the sex for him wasn't about sexual satisfaction. It was about control. It was about conquest. It was about always being able to be in control, always be able to win. He said once that behavior wasn't socially acceptable anymore, it went underground, and it just looked like anger and having to win every argument he was in. For those of us that have been through abusive situations when we were younger, Hell was when we were out of control. And so our salvation comes from feeling like we are in control. Like I'll never be back in a place where I was when I got hurt like that, so I have to control every situation. 
And in the end, we find it crushes some of the relationships we have now because we never want to feel vulnerable again because it was a place of hurt. See, these things aren't bad things in and of themselves. They're just things that we say, you know what, ultimately this is what is going to save me. Control. What about fame? It's the one I understand very intimately in my own life because I would say, oh, you know, I don't want to be famous, but man, the words of other people mean a lot to me. What other people think of me means far too much for me. How is it that some of us, right, we can have lots of positive affirmation and one word, one email, one conversation just sends us into a pit and we're just thinking about the words. Some of us are living our lives, we've even adopted a career just to please our parents because that's kind of what they always wanted for us. The approval of our parents, the approval of our spouse, the approval of other people, the approval of friends is this thing, not just that, yeah, it's good to have friends, but we, we make decisions, we actually make compromises and things that we know are true just to get the approval of other people. It's actually making us bow down. Fame, the approval, the opinion of others, and beauty. We live in a culture that says, hang on, hang on to how you look, hang on to what you used to be able to do. And for some of us, that sort of desire for beauty comes from the fact that we felt like we never had it when we were younger. We couldn't turn the heads of people we wanted to. We weren't good enough at sports when we were younger, so we're constantly trying to get better and get better because somehow if we could just feel successful, feel beautiful in some way, feel strong, feel like attractive, that somehow we could hang on to it. And others of us, we actually had a lot of that. We were really successful as athletes. We turned the heads of lots of people. And so now as we get older, we find it slipping through our fingers. We think if I could only hang on, so I'm just going to spend more time in the gym and I'm going to spend more time trying to make sure I look good. I'm going to spend more energy into this. Why? Because I need that to tell me I'm okay. How do I know I'm okay? Because I have this. Because I have the approval of other people. I have the attention of other people. I look like the way I want to look or the way the world tells me I should look. See, these are gods. We don't actually call them that, but it's a universal reality for every single one of us. And here's why they're gods. Because they promise us what only God can give. They promise us satisfaction. If you get this, then you will have. I was at a spiritual retreat this week and I happened to be in South Mississauga, a beautiful area of the city, and I went for a run during the day past houses that you see in movies. And you know what was interesting? On almost every single driveway, the homes were beautiful. They were finished. There were people living in them. But almost every single driveway had a massive construction bin because more construction was going on. I thought, man, it never ends. It never ends. I get the thing that I think I want. And that's easy to sound judgmental about other people. I'm the same way. It never ends. I get what I think that I want, and it's not enough. I just need more. Like everything. These are false. They're God's because they promise what only God can give, satisfaction for the soul, security and stability for the future. They're God's because we make sacrifices to them. See, in this, in this story, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, bow down, give your allegiance, give your heart to this thing, live for this thing. And that's exactly what these things do, make sacrifices. And many of us can say growing up, yeah, you know what, I lived in a home where my parents sacrificed time with me to make money. They sacrificed time with me to get further on in their career. Many of us would feel like, and we read stories of like gods in the Old Testament where these other nations would sacrifice their children. We think that's so barbaric, and yet every one of us can relate to somehow in some way feeling like on the wrong end of that. 
We make sacrifices. We give time. We give energy to, and money to anything that will promise to give us satisfaction in our soul and stability and security in the future. And here's the reason, the most reason they are gods. It's just like Nebuchadnezzar is dictating their life. Do this, do that, bow down. We think, what a crazy dictator. The gods we worship dictate the way we live. The gods we worship tell us where to spend our money. The gods we worship tell us where to invest our time. The gods we worship tell us who to, who to be friends with. The gods we worship tell us what kind of job we should pursue. The gods we worship tell us what we should wear and how we should act. They dictate our very lives. See, you and I may live under the charter of rights and freedoms, but no one is free. Everyone has a lord of their life. Everyone worships. You don't get to decide that. You just get to choose who and what you will bow down to, who and what you will give your life to. Uh, Hugh Hefner died a couple of weeks ago, sort of the playboy mogul who basically introduced porn into the world as we know it. It's very interesting, in an interview with the New York Times a few years before he died, he said that um, when he got married at the age of 22, he had never slept with a woman before. And he married his high school sweetheart, and in a few months found out that she had cheated on him. And 50 years later, he says to the New York Times, that was the most devastating event of my life. So this guy who started the Playboy Kingdom, is it about satisfaction? No, it's salvation. No one is ever going to prefer someone else over me again. Right? It is the deepest part of our hearts. It's easy to see in the extremes of people's lives like Hugh Hefner and hold them up as these people who make such terrible decisions in life. But this desire for satisfaction and salvation is in every one of us and we have fickle hearts and we will look to whatever we think will give it to us. And we live in a world that is constantly saying, wealth, power, fame, beauty, here it is. That's the bad news, I know. <laughs> is there good news in this? There is, you know, because freedom begins when we say, I'm actually not going to bow down today. See, freedom for those young men said, you know what? We, yeah, we're a part of this culture and we're trying to do the best and we're trying to be the best and, and you know, lean in and engage. But we are not going to bow down. We are going to call these gods false. Freedom begins when you start to, or as in the old fairy tales, right? When the spell is broken, suddenly we're able to see things we couldn't see before. And I'd like to tell you this goes away over time, but I would say, you know, this is a journey that for me started about five or six years ago when I began to realize this is actually what sin looks like in my life, that I'm constantly trying to worship things that are good but aren't God and make them God. And coming into a place and a season in life in a church where we're dealing with a lot of uncertainties now, I've realized this whole idol of control is a big deal for me. Man, I worry a lot more than I ever used to. And I've realized just in my heart, what is it? It's because I'm trusting in myself or I'm trusting in circumstances or I believe it's up to me to make things happen and I'm afraid of failure and I'm afraid of all of this stuff. And you start to realize, wait, where is my hope? In myself, in circumstances, in the environment that I'm in, in the pros outweighing the cons, in money. It's in God alone. I don't get to choose whether I worship, but I do get to choose who. So the good news begins when we say, wait a second, maybe this is a false God for me. Maybe I have a problem with that. 
But the even better news is this, that you and I worship a God who when he came to earth did not say, love me or I'll kill you, <laughs> right? Like you're reading this thing. He's saying, bow down or we'll throw you in the fiery furnace. <clears throat> you and I worship a God that didn't say, love me or I'll kill you. He said, I've come to be killed for you so you can freely choose to love me, right? See, friends, when we start to see that these gods are demanding so much from us and give us less and less with each passing day, we were able to run in the arms of Jesus and say, you're the only God who needs nothing from me. You died for me. Isn't that, isn't that make Jesus so beautiful? That instead of demanding sacrifice from us, he offered himself as a sacrifice for us. Which makes him the only one worthy to be the Lord of your life. He needs nothing from... All these other gods demand time, demand money, demand energy, demand blood from us and give us so much less than they promise. Jesus is the only one who says, I need nothing from you. I came to serve you. I came to give myself as a sacrifice for you, to free you to love. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do, something that began a bit of a troubling but really good journey for me, to begin to understand this in my own life, is just to start a conversation with that Lord of your life to start a conversation with Jesus, which, by the way, bracket, is prayer. And I, I just put three questions up there that maybe you want to, and you can snap a photo of this or whatever if you want to remember these because you're going to need some time. Jesus, why do I do fill-in-the-blank so much? And after you get that answer, ask why again and ask why again. Keep going down. Jesus, why do I want X so badly? Why am I so fixed on this? One of the things I started to realize that I do, one of the questions is like the last one, why do I think about fill in the blank so often? You know what I started to realize a few years ago I do with my spare time when I have like five minutes? I'll go on those bank websites and do the retirement calculators. I don't know why, because it's depressing. Like I don't really want to, don't like the answer. I keep thinking if I just you know, keep hitting enter, it'll spit out better numbers and the graph will look better. It never does. But you know what I noticed about myself? And this is a really good question someone asked me. Where, do you, where does your mind go when you have free time? You know, for me, I realized money is a security thing. How do I know I'm going to be okay in the future? That's what a retirement calculator tells you. Are you going to be okay in the future? As if it can tell you what the future is going to be. As if it can tell you what the future is going to hold. But my mind started to go then. So this question of what do I, why do I think about this so often? Start that conversation with Jesus. And maybe if you're brave enough, ask someone close to you because it's a lot, easy to see, a lot easier to see other people's false gods. Oh, yeah, you love this. So ask someone close to you. Say, hey, why, what do I talk about in conversation a lot? Like even when we hang out with each other as part of our church family, what comes up a lot? Is it leisure stuff? Is it money stuff? Is it car stuff? Is it stuff we're buying? Is it what our kids are doing? Is it what experience we had or what's going on at our work. All those things are a normal part of life. What, what dominates my conversation? Ask someone close to you, what do I talk a lot about? Have this conversation. It is the beginning of inviting Jesus in to this little world of idols that we, each of us has in our hearts to say he's the safest person to invite in. Why would you do this to kind of start this dangerous conversation with Jesus? Because it's dangerous for sure. It's easier to just walk out of here and not ask any of these questions.
But here's why. Because every other thing that you worship will diminish you as a person. You worship sex, it'll diminish you as a person. You worship money, it'll diminish you as a person. You worship what other people think of you, it'll wreck you. You worship being in control, it'll squeeze the life out of all of your relationships. Everything else that we say, oh, you're what I need, you're what I need, you're what I need, shrinks us as a person. When we worship Jesus, we become the people we were meant to be. Worshiping Jesus makes us more of who we are, not less. So why is the one person we can invite in? So why you begin this dangerous conversation to be the people we long to be in our hearts? We were talking about it this week as a staff. We said, man, we need to pray for each other. And so we're going to do something we haven't done for a little while, but we like to do um, regularly, is just have an opportunity for you to receive prayer. And so the worship team is going to come up and lead us, and there's going to be a few uh, people in pairs who are praying. Are, are any at the top? So where are they? Two, two at the top of the aisles and then two down here. And while the worship team is, is playing, if you just feel like if there's something just got stirred up for you today and you're like, maybe you can't even put it into words, but you just need prayer, you don't have to come with a specific request. You can just come to people and say, just pray for me. Maybe there's something specific that you say, this one for me. You know what? I'm so tied to what other people think of me and I don't want to be anymore. Or I'm so tied to what I look like and my physical health is bothering me and it's like I can't be what I used to be. Or maybe you say like, yeah, I'm so driven by money or I worry so much about money. Or I'm, I'm, having, I'm, I'm having so much conflict with my spouse or my kids or my extended family or whatever because I feel like there's this power battle going on. So maybe there's something specific, maybe it's something I don't even know. Some of you might be here and say, I don't even know if I believe in Jesus yet. And I was just reminded this week that Nobody who came to Jesus in the, in the Gospels believed him yet. They came to him and then believed because they realized who he was when they actually met him. And so none of these people praying for you are special. We're all human sinners. We all got heart idols. But they're going to take you to Jesus in prayer. And so if you've never been prayed for before, man, you are missing out. It's just an opportunity to say, wow, somebody prayed for me. And so I just cast the net as wide as possible, wherever you are, wherever you're at. There's a uh, pair here, a pair here, and at the top of the stairs. And as the team leads us, um, whenever you're ready, just go forward for prayer, and we'll sing together. We're going to sing uh, just a closing song together. It's called God My Rock. It's, uh, the, the lyrics are, um, you know, you, are, you will stand when others fall. You are faithful through it all. I just want to pray over you, those for just for all of us that are here and those that are, if you still want to come forward for prayer, please, by all means, do that. And they'll stick around after the service is over too. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our rock. You are the one on whom we stand. We recognize, God, that there are times in lives we don't even realize that you are holding us up while we go chasing after all these other things. Thank you that you're so gracious. You don't shame us. You don't wag your finger at us saying, why do you do that? You understand us. You have walked in our shoes. You had a human heart. So Lord, we just thank you that this invitation to worship you is just that, an invitation. Freely given. And so we receive it this morning. We just, we want you to be the rock on which we stand. We want to feel again that our feet are on a sure foundation, not on these slippery things that sink and crumble away and that work for a while and are gone next week. We thank you that you are faithful, that you are the same 
yesterday, today, forever. So as we sing, Lord, for some of us, it's not true today that you are a rock. We want it to be, though, and that's a prayer, too, saying, God, let it be, let it be, let it be. Even as we sing, Lord, even as this space and this time and those who are being prayed for and all of us who are being prayed for right now, just shift us off of the things that can't hold us anyway. Place us on you. Again, we thank you.